This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Terawan Saranai, the blessings of the Buddha be with you and welcome to the program. Perhaps instead of a Sri Lankan greeting though, I should say Tashidele, the Tibetan for good fortune, because the topic we're talking about is the nature of reality, which the Mayana Buddhists know as emptiness. Generally, the Tanavadan traditions do not talk about emptiness, preferring instead selflessness. Emptiness is an odd word because it may lead people to think that Buddhists believe everything is empty of existence, that is, nothing exists. That's very far from what the Buddha taught. As we've stated many times over the last few weeks, emptiness refers not to a void where nothing is, but to a state in which things do not have their own inherent independent existence. They exist only in dependence on other things, like causes, conditions, parts, and the mind that labels them. When we say things are empty, it means they are empty of that inherent independent existence, not that they do not exist at all. It's quite a fine line, and some scholars even criticized Nagarjuna, the great Indian Buddhist master who explained emptiness in texts like The Fundamentals of Wisdom, for being a nihilist. However that may be, the point of the matter for most of us ordinary people is that we don't see things as empty. We instinctively see them as full, full of independent existence, as though they have their own inherent existence. If I asked you what you see when you looked at your close friend, will you tell me you see a history of elements and formations coming together steadily since the Big Bang, changing from one thing to another, one being to another, until your friend was formed? Would you tell me that you didn't actually see a whole independent person, but just a collection of parts, and the causes and conditions that brought them together? Would you tell me that your friend is just actually a construction of your mind's labeling him or her as your friend? If you answered yes to those questions, you're an arhat or even a Buddha, and what are you doing listening to this program? You should be presenting it. However, those of you who said no, like me, suffer under major debilitating delusion that makes life the up-and-down generally unfortunate thing that it is. Maybe not terrible, like the situation of a third-world beggar or a tortured prisoner in a Chinese communist prison cell, but the misery of a life that will never bring us the long-term happiness and peace we really long for, and in fact deserve. Always the happiness or satisfaction we find will be tempered by the very nature of this type of life, which is dissatisfaction. Our delusion is that we grasp at things as if they have their own existence, independent of anything else, even of their history and parts. And then, based on that understanding, emotions arise arise, which trigger action, which in turn places tendencies or potentials on the mind. In due course, those tendencies will ripen into experience for us. If the original action was well motivated, the experience will be happy. If badly motivated by an emotion like attachment, anger and so on, only suffering will result. 
If we look at our lives, we will see that we are constantly creating actions motivated by self-centeredness. Inevitably, the karma those actions create will lead to suffering for us. That is why understanding and meditating on emptiness is so important. If we want to put a stop to the suffering, we have to give up the emotional reactions to things and people. To do that, we must have to give up the idea that they exist in one way when they actually exist in a completely different way. We have to realize emptiness. And so, over the last few programs, we've been talking about emptiness and what it means. Of course, it's very difficult to change our basic way of viewing the world, and we have to be very careful that along the way we don't go too far and turn into the nihilist that some people say we are. So it's not advisable to rush off to a cave and meditate on emptiness as soon as we've heard a little bit about it. In the Tibetan system, they say you have to familiarize yourself with all the other topics, like impermanence, suffering, karma and so on, and then take a lot of teachings on emptiness before thinking of meditating on it. Therefore, although we are discussing how to realize emptiness, for now it's for the sake of knowledge, not for the sake of meditation, unless you already have a teacher and have been advised to meditate on it. Now before we go any further, let's take a minute to set our motivation for participating in the program today. If you can, make your motivation as vast as possible. That is, to attain enlightenment, not only for your own sake, but so you can help all beings who suffer and lead them to the final peace of nirvana. If you can't set such a motivation, at least think of your enlightenment and dedicate listening to the program to that. Thank you. Now last week we looked at seven metaphors for emptiness and today we're going to look at how to meditate on it. As I said in a previous program, it's considered easier to realize emptiness meditating on the self before phenomena, so that is what we will start with. It's a fourfold meditation which should lead to a clear understanding of the lack of any inherently existing independent self. Emptiness is what is called a non-affirming negative. That means, when it negates something, it doesn't imply anything else exists in its place. For instance, if I know that a farmer always keeps either horses or cows in a paddock, and his wife says to me that today there are no cows in the paddock, I can safely assume the animals in the paddock are all horses. The negation of the existence of cows affirms the existence of horses there. But when we negate inherent existence in an object or person, we do not affirm anything in its place. We are not, for instance, saying because things are empty, they therefore do not exist. We merely realize that inherent existence does not apply, and that leaves us with the emptiness of the person as our object of meditation. As I said, this is a four-part meditation. First, we clearly bring to mind the object that we are negating, an inherently existing person. Then, in the next three steps, we look at all the possible ways such a thing could exist, and for each, prove that it is impossible for any self to exist in that way. In the end, we are left with the only possibility a person is empty of such an existence. Once this is clear to the mind, we concentrate on it so that it makes a very deep impression. The four parts to this meditation are therefore identifying the object of negation, ascertaining the pervasion, ascertaining the absence of oneness, 
and ascertaining the absence of difference. First, we have to identify what we are denying the existence of. Without knowing what we are trying to negate, we would find it very difficult to negate it. Geshe Lodan, in his text The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, likens it to trying to find a thief in the streets of Baghdad without a description of the thief. The thing we are negating here is the inherent existence of the self or person. The emptiness of the person is just this lack of inherent existence. Now I'm going to read what Geshe Lodan says in his book because although the language is a little bit technical, it does explain it well. He says, The person, the self, the sense of identity and I are synonymous. When you say, I will go, or I like it, this sense of identity or I is the person that is empty. This person, self or I is of two types. The first is the I that is merely imputed onto its base, the parts of a person, which are the five aggregates. It exists conventionally, by way of label, or as dependent arising, but it does not exist ultimately. It exists conventionally because it performs the function of that suitable to be labelled a person, and serves as the referent spoken of in I will eat, I will go out now, I am reading, I will meditate. The second type of I is the entity cognized due to the imposition of inherent existence on the first type of I. It does not exist ultimately or conventionally. It is a totally non-existent imaginary. Being an imaginary, it is possible to talk about it, describe it and identify it in the same way that we can the horns of a rabbit. At the same time, an inherently existing self, conceived to be independent of its parts, causes, conditions and label, is completely non-existent. It is this second type of self that one is empty of, not the first type. Having abandoned the wrong view of the second type of I, you are left with the correct view, which is the emptiness of inherently existent I, and its conventional existence as the first type of I. If you were to hold the emptiness of the I negates both types of I, you would fall in the extreme of the nihilists, who claim that non-existence is the true nature of persons. If this were true, there would be nothing that could be labelled I, and nothing could function as a person. Although it is empty of inherent or ultimate existence, the first type of I definitely does exist conventionally. If persons did not exist conventionally, we could not communicate, because we could not even designate you or I. Now, did you get that? Basically, he's saying, we use two types of I when we speak about ourselves. When, for instance, we say, I am eating, we are using the letter I as a label for the collection of skin, bones, flesh, and so on, as well as the internal workings of the person. We use this label to communicate with each other in our conventional world. The I is nothing but a label to distinguish me from you and from the other things around me. That label applies to a base that is just the collection of the five aggregates form, feeling, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness which is how Buddhists describe all the parts making up the person. This particular I has nothing to do with seeing the I as an independent inherently existing thing. It's just a conventional label and its existence is quite valid. In the second type of I, we put onto the first type of I 
a kind of existence that it doesn't have. We see it as having an independent existence, not depending on the five aggregates or anything else. This I appears to us as if it exists inherently from its own side, like a unique, permanent soul, or something like that. That I, Geshe Loden says, does not exist at all, neither conventionally nor ultimately. It is, in fact, completely unfindable. However, we can cognize it and talk about it in the same way as we talk about the horns of a rabbit. The horns of a rabbit are totally imaginary. They don't exist in any way at all apart from our imagination. Similarly, the eye that is conceived of as inherently and independently existent is totally imaginary. Nowhere will we find it apart from in our, ma- our imagination. Now Geshe Loden goes on to say, Where we take the wrong turn and miss reality is mistaking the second type of I for the real mode of existence of the person. It is this basic mistake that binds us to cyclic existence. Seeing the emptiness of such a substantially and independently existing I and seeing the conventional mode of existence of the I is what frees you from cyclic existence forever. Now this means that we instinctively grasp at the I or me in the second way. We think we're some kind of real independent being. Of course, if you think about it, you may be able to see intellectually that this is not true. For instance, if I asked you to describe yourself, if I asked you, who really are you, you would probably find it very difficult to answer. If a real independent you existed, you should be able to see it quite clearly and be able to tell me about it in some detail. But you can't. This just shows that what we think we are is in error. We think we are inherently real, but are at a loss of words to say what that actually means when it comes down to it. But realizing intellectually that no inherently existing I can be found is not enough to free us from cyclic existence and suffering. We have to see it experientially, because we are so attuned through our endless parade of lives to grasp at the second type of I that it is very deeply ingrained in us now. Intellectual knowledge will not be enough to vanquish that deeply held view. This also makes identifying the self-grasping very difficult, particularly when we are looking at it, for then it doesn't appear very clearly to us. Say you are eating ice cream, and your mother phones and asks, What are you doing? At the moment you say, I am eating ice cream, you don't actually feel the presence of the independent I, as you would if your mother scolded you severely for stealing the ice cream out of her freezer when you knew that you hadn't. As soon as she does that, the I arises much more strongly, doesn't it? So this gives us a clue how to go about identifying the self-grasping I. That is what we call the object of negation. The object of negation is the thing that we're going to prove doesn't exist at all. We are negating its existence. The second type of I appears most closely when we meet up with out-of-the-ordinary circumstances, like someone accusing us of something we didn't do, or when we are feeling deeply depressed, or even when we are highly praised. At times like that, if we look closely at the I that is arising, it appears to be completely independent of anything. It appears to stand on its own, not depending on the body or mind, the five aggregates Buddhists talk about.
If at that time we could slow down and investigate where and how this I exists, we would not be able to find it anywhere. Even though it seems very clear and ingrained, it cannot be discovered. Geshe Loden calls it a myth, a nonsense, a superstition and a total fantasy. The way that persons really exist is much more subtle, he says. It is like when you are watching television and can describe the people whom you see and observe their activities, but in reality there is no one there at all. However, even though it doesn't exist at all, it is still very important that we identify it, because unless we know what our delusion is, we will never be able to abandon it. We have to pinpoint it very clearly, and then prove to ourselves that it is a delusion before the mind will start to let go of it. Geshe Loden suggests that we try to observe both the conventional I and the other one, the inherently existing I. Observe them together, he says. As when walking in the forest with a friend, you are mindful of both your friend and where you are walking. At times, when you are analyzing the mode of existence of the I, you may feel unsure of just exactly where the I is. Sometimes we might think I am my body. Sometimes we think it's the mind. Even at other times, we might get the idea that it's somewhere between body and mind. As I said before, if we are not very aware of what is really going on, and not in some stressful situation, it is difficult to know exactly what the I is. We are not grasping very strongly at the I at those times. Only in those other unusual situations do we get a strong sense of it. Let's now do a little meditating on the eye to see if we can get some experience of what we've been talking about. First, sit comfortably and concentrate on your breath, letting whatever arises in your mind and outside just pass on by without getting involved in it. If you do wander off, just gently bring your mind back onto your breath and concentrate again without any comment or judgment.
Now ask yourself, who is meditating? If the answer comes, I am, ask, who are you? It's not necessary to get into a long, complicated discussion with yourself. Just see and notice what answer appears to you, but keep the question going. So, for instance, if the answer came to me, Tenzin is meditating, I would ask, who is Tenzin, and so on. Notice what the mind does in answer to the question. Did you get any firm, unequivocal, defining answer? Now remember a situation in which you were falsely accused of something you didn't do. If you haven't had that experience, remember a time you were criticized or even highly praised. Remember the situation as clearly as you can, so that the sense of I arises strongly. When it is very strong, look closely at this I and see how it appears to exist inherently and independently, as if it had some kind of real self-existence. Have a good look at this eye while it is apparent to your mind and see if you can work out how it exists. But don't overdo it and give yourself a headache.
Okay, now I come out of meditation. How did the eye from the first meditation and the eye from the second meditation appear different to you, if they were different? Did you notice how very powerfully the eye in the second appeared to exist entirely from its own side, not dependent on anything else? This is the object of negation. It is this eye that actually has no existence at all. Now time is nearly up, but I must stress again that when we talk about a non-self, we're not saying the self does not exist at all. As Geshe Lodin says, there are some who conclude that an ordinary person has an eye while a Buddha does not. This is incorrect, because the Buddha certainly has an eye or self. The Buddha still thinks, I am Shakyamuni, ah, now I will teach the Dharma, and so on. His attainment of Buddhahood is not gained by overcoming the eye, but by overcoming the ego-grasping. The obstacle is the ego-grasping or self-grasping in relation to the eye or person. From the perspective of the two types of eye, the Buddha has the first type, but has overcome any trace of the self-grasping ignorance that would lead him to believe that he had the second type of eye. And now it's time to go. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from today's program to the enlightenment not only of yourself, but of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.